Welcome to Maker Skills, exploring your internal toolkit with PJ, Tanda, and Tom. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 80. We've got a special guest this week. Chris from Cowdog Craftworks is here. Woohoo! Welcome, Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Now, Chris, uh, why don't you tell us what your dominant skill set is? So um, I'm primarily a woodworker, and like one of the biggest focuses I have is on proper joinery. So essentially wood joinery, uh, I connect two pieces of wood together, and it's one of my favorite things to do. And I do it in increasingly difficult ways, uh, sometimes not so practical, sometimes kind of practical, but usually not so practical. So wood joinery, that's what I heard out of all that, wood joinery. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> let's go with that, yeah. Okay, so if, if you had to, to quantify it here, what skill class is wood joinery? So on a scale of like zero to ten, zero being, I don't know, a cup, and ten being forest green, I'm somewhere around light blue, so let's go with that. that, that oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah, that, that tracks for me. Yeah, that... That's surprising, but Tom, like Tom is easily surprised, so don't pay any attention to that. <laughs> but it's now time for history and fun facts. Uh, Chris, did you do any research on wood joinery to, uh, to share with us? Yeah, so I've actually got kind of a fun one. Um, I'm really into Japanese joinery and Japanese tools to begin with, and so uh, I want to talk a little bit about the impossible joint that is located at uh, Osaka Castle in Japan. And it's actually a joint that is part of a pillar splice. So essentially what it is, we have a vertical pillar and there is a spliced portion on the foot. And it's somewhat described as the impossible dovetail. Uh, I definitely encourage uh, your listeners to give it a little Google and uh, take a look at what it looks like. Because obviously I understand this is an audio only platform. But what's cool about this is that a newspaper featured this joint in 1979 and they titled it as a mystery joinery. And they put a call out to the readers to try to, um, I guess, determine how this joint was actually put together. And so there was a follow-up article the next day and they were trying to share this whole concept with the readers. And then eventually in 1983, they actually x-rayed the joint itself and were able to determine how it was put together. And after, you know, they got some carpenters to kind of look at what this construction ended up looking like, they were able to determine, obviously, the way that it was constructed there, but then also another alternative way to cut the joinery. Um, Japanese joinery is known for being, um, I would say, pretty practical for the most part. However, this was a little bit extreme. And one of the funny things is that a lot of, uh, I guess, very technically sound Japanese carpenters were known to use uh, tricky joinery in a handful of their places. And that was kind of a passive aggressive way for them to show off their skills. And that's sort of what is, I guess, suggested by this Osaka castle pillar splice. And that is that. Hmm. I've, I've what, is, what was the answer? Cause I've seen those and it basically just slides diagonally together. Correct. That's it. But yeah. Is that what the, the original one was? Yes. Yeah interesting yeah it's basically um think of like a v-shape uh female and then there is a 
pointed shape like a like a pitch triangle as the male end and on one side of the triangle is a dovetail and then on the other side it's just sort of like a peg and so it just slides in from one side and then the peg seats that's that's the basic explanation yeah exactly i didn't follow that at all but of course like 50 years ago when you're looking at it especially from the outside without having that x-ray view of it it looks ridiculous like there's it looks like it's mind-bending so yeah and it would only come out one direction there's no way if you didn't know which side it was supposed to come out like it it just it wouldn't happen correct yes very cool very cool now um i know that's going to be tough to beat tom did you do any research i did i did it's joinery adjacent it's about wood i just found out something fascinating and uh have you ever heard anybody talk about poplar wood and they're like well it's technically a softwood but it's actually pretty hard and you can use it for all kinds of stuff i've heard that a million times Anybody else? Yes. No? Yeah. You'll it's a soft right. hardwood is what they call it, or a hard softwood. I always forget which way that goes. Yeah. So, so sure. I, I found the real explanation for that statement. Hardwood and softwood has nothing to do with the wood. Correct. If oh, it's damn if, it. yeah, if I hate it, it when you know things, I, I of course I know this, Tom. Should, I'll let you finish. <laughs> I know t- what the answer is, though. Enlight- no, enlighten us because I hope you're still wrong. Okay, so any conifer is considered softwood, <laughs> and any deciduous tree is considered hardwood, regardless of the density. Well, uh, all right, you're probably that's probably correct, but it has to do with the seed. If the seed has a shell, or if it doesn't. If it has a shell, it's a hardwood. And if it's a, if it's n- doesn't create a shell, it's a softwood. So a conifer doesn't create a shell. Right, basically <laughs> what he said, but <laughs> but it's about the seed. Yeah, basically if it's if it's any kind of an evergreen, any evergreen is considered a softwood and any deciduous yeah. which is leaf bearing. Poplars aren't evergreens though, are they? No, they're a hardwood. Poplars yeah. poplars leaf bearing no. tree. Yeah. Nope. I'll look that up. Poplar's an evergreen? I'll look it up. Tana's turn. I'm pretty, pretty sure they're... I'm going to keep this really short, so Tom has to hustle with looking it up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, found, I found a site, and the headline of the site was uh, the, the similarities and differences between carpentry and joinery. And there are just two facts on this site. It said both joiners and carpenters are experts in a wide range of different types of wood joints and techniques... And this second one should take note of it, Chris, because it could be the direction you're going. Members of both professions tend to progress to becoming site managers due to their ability to read drawing and set out work to exacting standards. So I guess you go from carpenter or joiner to site manager, according to this website. Um, I don't see how being good with woodworking qualifies you to run a website. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. (laughs) Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. It's, but, but it was the title of the entire website, so you have to assume it's true. I mean, oh. they're hanging their hat on, on the difference between joiners and carpenters. So, I mean, I I personally prefer the the carpet myself. I think it's softer than wood. It's you know you don't have to you don't have to wear socks. You'd have to, you have to vacuum, but deep pile carpet is way way better in my opinion. We can bring back shag yeah. carpentry. Yeah. That's, 
Oh yeah, shag shag carpentry would be fantastic if they could get that back into fashion. It's like grass inside your house. Yeah. Tom. So you're you're saying if they they started a new shag carpet group, you'd be a joiner? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Okay. That's that's where joinery is key. Right. Tom, did so, you Tom, did you find, you find out? It? Yeah. Yeah, this just in. So poplar is a hardwood, yeah. but it is soft and easy to work like pine or other other things like that. So there's I, I just never heard the actual I never heard that. I just assumed it had to do with the hardness of wood. Which yeah. there's like a whole scale for that. I don't know what that scale's called. Uh, there is a name for it. Uh, Jenka April hardness. Wilkerson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what did Jenka you hardness. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. April That's Wilkerson. That's what I assumed she, it referred to, but she um, explained it. April Wilkerson makes uh, uh, cutouts, like um, plastic. I think they're HDPE. I'm not 100% sure, but she makes those um, charts that you can hang in your shop. And it tells you like what the softest wood is going down to the hardest, and she's got like I don't know, it's like thirty mm. or fifty different species on there. Um, but yeah, cool. yeah, that's that's right down. It goes right down to that uh, that super dense wood from Africa. What is it, Jatoba or something? The stuff that won't mm. float. I can't remember. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's there's something on there that's that's so dense. It's like it just it just sinks into the ocean. There's actually a really good yeah. website. It's called uh, wooddatabase.com, and you can literally mm-hmm. like look up any kind of species and get like all the vital facts on it, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I, I have that on my phone because every time I don't know a wood species, I, I ask Paul Jackman, and he's like, go to the wood database. Stop <laughs> asking me. I don't want to tell you anything. <laughs> so. true, true story. Jackman, he's sorry, just, sorry, he's Paul. Just I was just attention. trying to start conversation. What didn't really yeah. care. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think he's tired of it. He's like, look, just, just lose my account, all right? Just stop talking to me. <laughs> He asked me to mention that to you also. I didn't want to bring it up during uh, during the recording. He's like, talk to the okay. tiny-headed version of me. In fact, he keeps reaching out to me, and it's getting pretty annoying about you. And uh, it'd be great if you just stopped, PJ. That'd be great. Well, you should tell him to stop reaching out to you. You're kind of tired of it. Well, I told Graz. I keep telling Graz to tell him to stop reaching out to me about you. It's just a whole thing. Don't worry about it. All right. What'd you find? What, what kind does, of Does this mean that the for, should uh, I tell PJ texts are going to end from you, Tom? <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, it's I'm gonna have to call Jimmy and have Jimmy call Jackman, and then maybe Graz will get stuck in the middle somewhere, and then uh, then it'll it'll stop eventually. I don't know. Uh, what I found was um, I knew Chris was into uh, the Japanese joinery, so I did a little research on uh, kumiki, which is technically part of the impossible joint he talked about, but I found a website that. Uh, is talking about the, the history of it as uh, uh, that they've traced it back to the Heian period in the Hida region uh, where there's dwellings and temples that are built using a uh, kumiki and for those of you that don't know uh, these are buildings that are made completely with wood joinery there is no metal hardware at all and um, cool. there's a whole bunch of benefits to that and They've got a whole list here of uh, they got five different reasons why uh, people are attracted to kumiki. Uh, and the first is that it has exceptional strength. Uh, you can also make, let's say you need a piece of wood that's 
20 feet long, but you don't have a 20 foot long log. Let's say you've only got smaller ones. Uh, there are techniques to join those pieces together to create a, a basically solid 20 foot piece of lumber that is strong, just as strong as if it was one solid piece. So um, that's a big, big part of it. Uh, I think the, Fireball Tool should do a test. Oh, yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Like, he, only he could do something that size, right? I don't know. Like I, a 20 foot beam that's scarf jointed together versus a straight up 20 foot beam. And he'd need like 30 test pieces just to make sure he didn't have one bad piece. So, a lot of those yes. long pieces, like, say, this is where layout kind of comes into play. So if you have a really, like let's say a big ridge beam and that big ridge beam is 20 feet long and it's got, let's say one connecting point where there's a scarf in the middle. So you would, oh God, <laughs> just drop my mic. Um, you would have that scarf joint located directly above a post to try to sort of put less stress mm. on that. Now it's still strong, but yes, like it is not going to be equally as strong as a perfectly intact beam so i can well let's delete that part of the podcast so the fireball tool still does it i'd like to see it happen <laughs> i i'm already working on a on a forgery of an old popular mechanics article that talks about it perfect perfect yeah chef's yeah. kiss <laughs> yeah post the picture we'll all tag him yeah tand will have the forgery online before we're done so don't worry about it yeah <laughs> All right, so um, the I'm just kind of skipping through here. It is used as a renewable and recyclable technique. So they've got uh, they've got a picture here of a building that has pillars uh, that are holding up either a floor or a ceiling, and the the building was a hundred years old, and the pillars were apparently in a damp area, so they rotted at the bottom, but above the bottom they were perfectly fine. So what they did was they cut off, like, let's say about three, four feet of the rotted section, and then they put stones underneath the pillars, and then they used a scarf joint to basically put, like, feet on the pillars. So it looks like one continuous piece now, but you can see the scarf joint, and the stone is rounded, so uh, the, the bottom contacting it is like a concave surface. Um, and it's... It's just letting you, basically, you don't have to replace an entire beam if one part of it has an imperfection. They're letting you know that there's ways to um, keep the existing structure. So, PJ, there's actually some really cool things that you brought up there. So that round stone, the reason that they use that is because it's going to shed water. So, like, as the water's running down that post, it's not going to pool up in the bottom. Because that round stone's there, it's going to run off to the sides and keep it from essentially collecting water and pooling and rotting. And then um, I've actually done a uh, joint that's very similar to that. It's called uh, Juji Meshigai Sugi. And really what it is, if you can picture, say, a castle joint that is done, say, on like a coffee table, it's like mm -hmm. that, except it's vertical. So with that same sort of like four-prong structure, that's a very common way for them to replace um, rotted parts. And then oh, another thing that they can do too is sometimes... It's a little bit of a cheat, but they'll replace that bottom part with a, a creosote or like a pressure-treated uh, section of bean to also uh, help with the entire process of trying to make it last, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
this cool stuff. I didn't know about the water runoff, but um, I have seen that technique used for bridges also. Uh, okay, so the next thing, this I thought was super cool. So because there are, there's no metal hardware and everything is held together basically with, uh, with either joints or pegs, uh, the structures that are built with uh, um, this technique can be recycled and reconstructed. So let's say you have a house that's up in the mountains, but then you move down the mountains into a village. You can take your house apart and then reassemble it wherever it is, wherever you want to be. And everything goes back together exactly the way it is. And they've done this with houses that were built like 150 years ago. Take them apart, put them back together. And I'm like, you can't do that with any any other house. You know, you, you hopefully that only takes a day though. Oh, sleep. Yeah, yeah, Tom, you yeah. should have just bought land, just moved the house you're in now, wherever you. That's true. Closer to work. It's like a craftsman style house true. on steroids. Is really kind of what it is. Yes. Ooh. Yes. Uh, and anyway, the uh, the last thing I have here is that the thing that, oddly enough, attracts people to this style of woodworking is the artisans that know how to do it are a particular kind of people that uh, they find very attractive. So, um, so that's it. That's the list I found. Uh, there was a bunch of different kinds of joints and things, but without actually being able to see them, I didn't want to sit there and, and describe them. But they're they're very it's what chris said was accurate they're they're they look like somebody showing off like a lot of these joints look like so odd but they're very very strong and well made well designed but you could tell somebody's like ha i make this joint good <laughs> <laughs> You've just entered the dealer's corner where bargains are currency. Prepare yourself. All right. I have an epic dealer's corner, but Chris has one also. So we're going to let Chris go first. Tell us the deal you picked up. So obviously I'm not on this podcast every single week. However, um, for the past probably month and a half to two months, I've been getting a variety of different uh, non-disposable Japanese pull saws. So if you're familiar with Japanese pull saws, generally speaking, they are very affordable. They are very great, but they are cheap and kind of flimsy. But that sort of goes to the allure, right? They're not expensive. You can kind of use them as you please. These non-disposable Japanese versions were forged in anywhere from the 70s to like the mid 80s. And I've probably in the past like six weeks or so collected about seven or eight different versions of them. Uh, different varieties, softwoods, hardwoods. Um, I mean, you know, Tom, you just figured out the difference between the two of those. So congratulations. I did. <laughs> um, but Thanks, man. Yes. I like this guest. He's my favorite. You know, trying, to, <laughs> trying to be polite. Um, but yeah, so the versions I got, though, um, they're, they're about $100 cheaper than you can normally find. And hilariously enough, I actually... Because I'm such an addict when it comes to Japanese tools, I have my own Japanese tool dealer. So this is a guy that I actually met on Facebook where all quality relationships are made. And he... That's where I meet my dealers. Yes. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, and he kind of, I guess, reached out to me on Instagram or vice versa. And we became pretty friendly. And so literally every few days, like this guy, he'll shoot me a message and say, hey, I've got... X, Y, and Z tool, right? And then 
I bite. And the next thing I know, I've got just hundreds of dollars of stuff showing up at my door and I feel really guilty about it. My wife is upset, but you know, at the end of the day, I've got these awesome tools and they're great. Uh, one of the cool things about these uh, Ryobas, because they're non-disposable, they literally cut like lasers. I mean, they're super high quality. They are uh, tensioned by a Japanese toolsmith that is called a matate, which is a expert sharpener. So they actually go through and they make sure that your blades on your saw blades are absolutely flat. They're tensioned correctly. They go through with a tiny little file, sharpen every single tooth, and these tooths come in different configurations. There's rip teeth for obviously long grain cutting, cross cuts, as I said, you know, cutting across the grain. And then there's a fun version that is used for carpentry applications, as uh, we were talking about carpentry versus joinery earlier, um, where it has these huge gullet teeth. They're called window teeth. Um, I cannot pronounce the Japanese word for it. I think it's makadono or matakono. I don't know. But anyhow. That's makarena. Could be, potentially. Clearly. Um, but yeah. the point is, is that the idea is that when you're cross-cutting with these larger carpentry saws with these big gullet teeth, it's clearing out material. So say I come across a lot of southern yellow pine here in uh, for, uh, sorry, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, so if I'm cutting cross-cutting a 12-inch beam with a um, Ryoba, the problem that I'll run into is A, the moisture content, and then B, the sap content. So if you don't have those big gullet teeth, your saw plate is actually going to catch like with all that sappiness and all that moisture and start to flex as you're, you know, going back and forth. So having those big teeth is going to help, you know, clear material out, make a faster cut. Uh, long story short, hell of a deal, hundred dollars cheaper, at least per pop than I'm uh, seeing elsewhere on eBay or anywhere else on the internet. Um, so if anybody's interested in finding these, feel free to shoot me a DM on the Instagrams. Nice. I, I've never had a saw licked by a Japanese master before. What does that run you exactly? So a normal one that I'm seeing on, let's say, eBay can be anywhere from three to $400. And whether or not they've actually been licked by a Japanese master is kind of in question. Uh, with these versions, mm -hmm. I'm finding yeah. them between 150 and 250 and I have the guarantee, essentially, that they have been licked by said Japanese master. So you can still that. see the lick marks. That's guaranteed authenticity right there. Yes. Yeah. And actually, speaking of lick marks, so I know we're joking around about lick marks, but you can actually see the evidence of the flattening. So these are forged uh, steel blades. So what you'll actually see after they've gone under uh, matate is a slight like tapping. So there'll be like tiny little indents on the saw plate. And that is evidence that somebody actually was attempting to flatten them against a flat surface and create a perfectly tensioned blade. Hmm. Now I have to have one. That's crazy. Yeah, right? <laughs> I got a guy, in case you need him. I got a guy. Man, I've, I've got guys. I've got guys. Not Maybe not that kind of guy, but I've got guys. I, I mean, look, hey, I've got Tom. You know, He's not exactly that kind of guy, but... I could tell him something. All right, so man, that, that was stuff. That, you could probably take a ball peen hammer and, and bang on a saw he found at an auction for you. That's yeah. that's that's what I would expect from Tom. Yeah, for, for sure, for yeah. sure. So, uh, my deal is called the Curio Motor Shop Mix-Up, and uh, this is one of those epic deals. So, my good friend uh, Ben makes KC Ben Wilson. 
he sends me this message. I don't I don't understand how this happens. This has happened more than once. He's in Kansas City, but he sends me a listing that's in Pennsylvania. And I don't know how he finds these things because I don't see them and I'm always looking. The listing says closed down motor repair shop, thousands of motors, okay, or, or 1,000 motors. Come get everything free. And I'm like, oh man, that sounds, but now this, what he sent me was a guy that had reposted the original post. So I couldn't get to whoever, what the original poster was. So I was trying to confirm this. And I got this on like a, a Wednesday or a Thursday. And that Saturday was when I was going to the Jacktown flea market. So I was like, man, this is like, I'm torn. I already have somewhere to go. So I'm thinking to myself, well, if there's a thousand motors there, maybe I can get some Rockwell Delta motors. That's all I really wanted to get because they're so hard to come by singles. You know, they're always attached to a machine. I'm like, they've got to have something. So the listing said, come Saturday at 9 p.m. or 9 a.m., 9 a.m. So I got up early, extra early, and I got there by 9 a.m. And when I got there, there was already like two box trucks getting loaded up and like guys were running in and out of the place. And I'm like, oh, man. So then I go inside and Tanda, ask me how many motors I got. I don't know, but your your topic prompted me because I just got an alert of 1,723 electric motor online auction from a local place. So that was kind of kind of weird. If they have any, how many motors deltas? did you? How many motors did you get? I'm going to say 57 and a third. Zero. I got zero <laughs> motors. Oh, I was really close. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say five. Were, yeah, not a single one. When I got there, the only thing that was left were like these tiny motors that were like the size of your fist that were for like, I don't know, refrigerators or something. Like uh, there was, they were gone. They were just gone. Everything had been ransacked. Uh, the lady that had bought the place owns a pool shop and they were, they want to use it as storage. They don't want any of the stuff there. And she said that, Thursday, she had started clearing some stuff out, and apparently somebody walking down the street saw her and is like, oh, hey, can I come take some of that stuff? And somebody emptied out half the shop on Thursday. And I'm like, really? <laughs> really? That's that's how this is going? Uh, I walked through looking for any kind of anything that looked like it would be valuable. Uh, I met a guy there that I, I'm now friends with on Facebook. He got, for free, a South Bend 9C lathe with all the attachments and everything. And then I don't know what model it was, but a Logan lathe, which was right mm -hmm. next to it. And um, underneath the table of the lathe, which was not for the lathe, but we couldn't figure out. I think it was for maybe like a line draft system, a line like a belt, a flat belt system for the shop. There were these two, I want to say that they were maybe like 18 inches wide with like a, 16 inch circumference huge cast iron motors that were connected by a transmission like it looked to me like one motor had stopped working so they hooked up another motor to it with a transmission just so that they could keep the other one going like i'm guessing that was the main one that was attached to the flat belts i don't know but we were sitting there looking at it and we're just like I don't, i'm not sure but 
they look like they're from the 1800s. Like they were just hmm. massive. Like they had to be like hundreds of pounds each one of them. They were they were just huge. So anyway, I went through the shop like a madman trying to grab stuff before other people could grab things because there was people just running in and out grabbing stuff. Like this there was there was a guy that already had a pile by the door and I was about to grab stuff and I'm like, "Oh wait, this is somebody's pile." I'm like, I, I, I got it. I'm like, is this someone's stuff? And somebody's like, yeah. I'm like, all right. So then I'm, I'm just looking for anything that I could grab to make the trip worthwhile. And this is what I picked up. So I got a, a Union Ruler Toolbox, which I, I have. This is a smaller one of the one that I actually redid. The one that I redid has like a when you open it up, it's got two separated trays and then the, the bottom where you can put tools. This has one tray, but I saw what I thought was a bunch of lathe cutters. And it turned out later when I got home that they were actually motor keys. So that's all different sized motor keys, which, you know, hey, I could use those. They're not cutters, but, you know, motor keys are still useful and then in the bottom there was like a bunch of like nuts and bolts and miscellaneous parts and unidentifiable things but i got a toolbox too there was a milwaukee nine inch heavy duty sander angle grinder with the cord cut and I, it looked like it was in rough shape but i just grabbed it because it was something i could pick up i got it home hooked it up to my cheater thing turned right on so i don't even know why they cut the cord it, it works like new i didn't have to do anything i well i do have to put a new cord on it but there's that um i grabbed this really cute it's by really cute i mean it's about two inches it's a stanley mini led tripod light so it looks like a little flashlight but then you can oh like where the handle would be is a little tripod legs that you could sit down and then the head tilts and you could just point it like if you need to get in something and shine a light on it and it takes these tiny, tiny little button cell batteries. And I bought like, I don't know, a 10 pack for two bucks off eBay. And they showed up. I plopped them in there and it works. And I'm like, ah, it's so cute. So I got that. Uh, I got two Milwaukee right angle drill attachment kits for those heavy duty right angle drills. Uh, a brand new Milwaukee armature for some drill model. A six inch digital caliper, which needed a new battery. That also works. Uh, new old stock Delta scroll saw blades in the package. New old stock Delta table saw throat plate insert. Uh, new old stock three sets of Delta 1x30 double sander belts. New old stock 40 packs of various Delta parts. So there was on the floor all of these parts that were still in the paper packaging and like feeling them with your hands, you could tell there's different things in each bag, but they were stapled closed and I just grabbed them all and stuffed them in a box because I didn't have time to investigate them. And I still haven't gone through them. I could tell hmm. that one of them has a scale sticking out of it. Like uh, one of those sticker scales that you would put on maybe like a, a miter saw or something for measuring the length. Um, it's black with silver demarcation. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. But all the rest of them, I have no idea what's in there. I got uh, a new old stocks 3M double-sided foam tape, brand new in the box. A Senco 
Frame Pro Air Nailer Rebuild Kit. Uh, new old stock, uh, various, uh, various sized uh, three V-belts. I got around 100 various sized red fiber washers for motors. I got a 12-inch bolt that had 23 large ball bearings on it. And the ball bearings were like from like an inch to like an inch and a half. I think I might there might have been a two inch around there. They're all different sizes. Uh, new old stock. I got 17 General Electric uh, centrifugal centrifugal. I don't know. They're motor starters. They're the things that are inside mm -hmm. a motor that when you start it up, they're spring loaded, and they use it to start the motor, and then they they pop open once it's at speed. So I got yep. brand new in the box. Uh, for General Motors, I got 17 of those. Mm -hmm. uh, I Jeremy got Fielding did a, a video on those. Mm -hmm. So if Jeremy needs some, I've got them. <laughs> just, just saying. <laughs> I don't need them. But like I said, I was just trying to grab anything that looked like it was worth something. Uh, I got a set of 12 um, pulley removal shims. So these are sort of like thin wedges that have a cutout in the middle that you can hammer uh, over a shaft to pop a pulley up off because the pulleys are always stuck on those motor shafts. And you can't use gear pullers because most of those pulleys are made out of aluminum and they just shatter. So there's that. I got uh, 10 uh, new old stock motor overload reset pods. So those are the red buttons on a motor. So when it overloads and it trips, it's the mm -hmm. reset button. So I've got uh, several of those brand new. I got a three foot long, weird profiled steel bar. It's sort of like, I don't even know how to explain it. One side of it is, is angled, but then the rest of it is rectangular. And it looks like it's coated in resin. I don't know what they were using it for, but I was like, I'll take that. I got a heavy duty power switch. I got toggle switches, an unknown amount because there's too many to count. I got um, motor brush covers, uh, an unknown amount. I got uh, drill triggers, like for a hand drill, unknown amount. Uh, I got motor motor brush springs, about approximately 50 of those. And then I got about 500 motor brushes, which I'm estimating is around $8,000 worth of motor brushes. If you haven't bought motor brushes, they are expensive, like super expensive. Like if you want two brushes, you're looking at anywhere from 12 to $20 for two small <laughs> motor brushes. That's nothing. Yeah. That's pricey for me. That's those things should be like two bucks. Okay. <laughs> they last like a hundred and fifty years. <laughs> yeah. For Seven dollars. Yeah. You're killing me. Oh man. Hey, it should be less than that. I so just felt anyway, like, I, I I just felt like Bubba was listing off all the different ways to cook shrimp just now. Like woof. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Welcome to I'm the like show, Chris. Crying inside. Welcome to the show. Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> So um, I picked up a 12-inch cube box. Bulls. with it's not over. Oh, no, it's not over. <laughs> this, this is the epic pick. I haven't even gotten to the best part. Is this okay. time for a sidebar? Yes, <laughs> sidebar. Chris, how you doing, man? Let's just finish the episode in the sidebar. Just Tanda, come on shrimp in. Cocktail. Come on in. Yeah. <laughs> shrimp cocktail. Oil shrimp. Shrimp gumbo. 
shrimp boil combo. Shrimp. Uh, shrimp remoulade. Big shrimp. I, I might have run out of shrimp just now. I don't. I don't know what just happened. I, I can't remember <laughs> any more options. Oh uh, gosh. Yeah, I love it. I deep love breaths. It. Anyways, <laughs> we better get this over with. We better get this. Over. Oh, it was, was it nice to take a break though? Yeah, it was nice to little little sidebar. He he may still be he may still be going. But we should probably. I wonder if we got to the good part yet. I bet. Well, I mean, there was no motors involved. We got to motor brushes. No. So. You could probably make a motor. motor parts. Probably have enough to make. Yeah. At this point, couldn't you just make all your own motors with all the parts that you found? Right. I think so. I think so. Did he say belts? He may be. He may be getting to that. I can still see his mouth moving. Were there timing belts? Let's unmute. Let's unmute him and drop back in. Okay. Yeah, let's see. Okay. Yeah. So oh, I've got is. a 12 inch cube box filled to the brim with new old stock Thor parts. You guys know I love Thor tools. Oh, really? All four. The whole thing, all brand new in the bags. Is that Chris Hemsworth? Is that the best Thor, part? Or is that no. uh, Natalie? No, no, Portman no. That's Thor. not the best part. That's not the best part. This is the best part. So I got four Lion brand 18 drawer tool shelving parts units okay so basically it's a it's something that goes on a shelf it's a metal shelving unit that's six across and three down parts drawers okay i got four mm-hmm. of these they are full all of them are full of rockwell delta milwaukee porter cable and black and decker parts that you can't buy anymore from the 80s down into the 50s that's pretty cool. So that's a success. So, you sounded really sad when you started with the story. That's the yeah, whole, that's, you got it for free. That's the whole point, Chris. It's the surprise. It's I, a I try to build you should have led with that. You should have led yeah. with that. You never lead with the best thing, Tom. Come so, on, you should know no, that. So you didn't you didn't get any motors. <laughs> no motors, not a single one. You led us through ten minutes no. of no I'm motor sorry, sadness sorry to hear that, to tell PJ. us that you found all these cool parts at the end. Like Yeah. 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 Um and I had to reorganize my entire shop to fit those drawer units in because they're big. So, remember, remember when I offered PJ a lathe and he said he didn't have room in his shop. I and still since don't, then I, he's bought eighteen tons worth of stuff and found a place for it in his shop. I still don't have room for a lathe. Free lathe. That's okay. I've, I gave it. I gave room. it to somebody else this weekend. That's okay. And I'm not yeah. mad at you. Hey, I could have got a free lathe if I had shown up a little earlier. This guy snagged it for me. But I don't, I don't have room for a lathe. I Look, I have a wood lathe that I'm restoring right now, and it is strapped to a dolly, and it is vertical because I can't put it down anywhere. That's, that's well, you, the, can use it, you can use it that way. There's, yeah, nothing, totally. there's nothing wrong with using a wood lathe it's vertically. It's just a drill press. Well, it is now, for sure. But anyway, that's my deal. What was the deal? Were those deals hot enough for you? You got a sizzling deal that's burning a hole in your pocket? Send it in, maybe we'll read it on air. Aren't you glad I didn't do that deal last last podcast, Tom, when I was talking about the flea market? We would have been here for three hours. Yeah. We always are, though. We always are. <laughs> that was only two and a half. Don't exaggerate, Tom. Chris, it's time for personal history. Uh, tell us how you got into wood joinery. <clears throat> oh, man. Well, it's actually kind of interesting, PJ, now I'm thinking about it, because you've kind of been along for the entire ride, weirdly enough. 
So that's true. That's true. We we know each other for a few years because I won one of your boxes in a contest. Yeah. Yeah. So you actually have like before I really actually that might have been like the first project that I did where I started actually utilizing sort of traditional hand tools. Like before that, I was almost strictly a power tool guy. And with I'm sorry. One moment. PJ won something from you for free <laughs> and he pays you back by making you come on this podcast years later. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Years later. Years later. He was wow. hoping he's That's hoping you would forget. The long con. <laughs> Holy smoke. Normally someone lures you in by giving you something for free, but somehow he got something for free and you have to come on the podcast. I know. Anyways, I didn't mean to interrupt, no, he, but he I Jedi did. mind tricked me. He's clever that yeah, way. Yeah, he Jedi mind tricked me. He <laughs> Jedi mind Legitimately. Me. Like yeah, he lulled That's me. That's called a master master technique, Tom. You'll learn it someday. He told me what he bought at the flea market mm. and I just agreed to anything after that. I was like, fine, just make it stop. <laughs> just wore you down. <laughs> wore you down. <laughs> Um, but no, so in all seriousness, I mean, I guess I have to begin at the beginning, you know, even pre getting into joinery, right? So I get into woodworking, number one, in about like 2015, 2016, I bought a house, I needed to outfit this house with furniture, I had no money because I spent all my money on the house. And then I went to a furniture store and I was like, good God, all this expensive and a buddy of mine who I was about to move in with, he was going to be my roommate, was like, hey, why don't you go on YouTube and start you know, learning how to do this stuff? You've got tools, so why don't you use them better? And I said, okay, let me try that. And so I started doing that. So fast forward a couple years, I've been kind of doing the sort of like DIY woodworking kind of thing for a bit. Um, just, you know, basic tools. I had a kind of crappy table saw. And I sort of wanted more. I just, I could feel that there was something else that I wanted to get into. And I'm a little bit of an addictive personality kind of guy. Um, very much get into my hobbies, so to speak. So the next thing I know, I find a $30 set of Japanese chisels that are, by all accounts, from what I understand, really Japanese chisels. They're made, you know, like they must be like the Harbor Freight of Japan, right? Like whatever they are, but they are like that sort of traditional Japanese construction. They are the, you know, laminated steel, etc. So I get into those. Um, and then, uh, I meet my now wife and she gets me a set of chisels for Christmas. And I start just messing with hand tools, getting into sharpening. And then the next thing I'm like, I'm up for a challenge, right? So I start getting into cutting dovetails and then it turns as sort of we got into this whole thing with uh, carpenters and the joints that we're seeing in these like very uh, ancient and very well-crafted Japanese uh, like temples and homes. I get into flexing. I'm like, okay, like I can do this cool. So now I'm going to push that. And then it just keeps escalating upon itself. And that's kind of where I've gone recently. So I would say in the past like three years or so, I actually started getting some training on the subject. So actually physically taking classes, learning from folks that um, actually have done this, uh, taking classes with people that have apprenticed in Japan, those sorts of things. And I'm not by any means what I would consider an expert, but I'm definitely, I guess, what I would call a student of the game. You know, like I'm somebody that really takes a lot of time, a lot of patience. Actually, interestingly enough, there's a great book um, 
called Japanese Woodworking Tools and Their Uses is by one of the, it's really the seminal tool, or sorry, seminal book in Japanese woodworking. It's by Toshio Odete. And he talks about this concept of like the shokunin, which is like your Japanese master. And one of the funniest things about it is the biggest insult for a Japanese master is to be considered slow. Like somebody that is just like not fast at doing the task at hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and That'd be me. Oh, 1000%. That is me. You know, like I am, I can do things very accurately, very complex, but I am extremely slow. I'm very like calculated. Oh God, this is the second time I've done that. <laughs> I just keep like knocking my mic over because I'm a hand talker. But anyhow, so very yeah, very excited on the subject. Um, but yeah, so I'm very slow, but like I said, very calculated, very focused, and I do have a relatively high level of success with like trying out new, uh, innovative kind of joints. I actually modify a lot of traditional Japanese joints to fit some of my applications. So, uh, for instance, about I want to say maybe it was last year. It could have been the year before. I did what I called a timber frame barn door. So I literally went into a Japanese carpentry book, uh, found joints that I liked, and then modified them for my purposes. And then even went as far as hybridizing the Japanese timber frame style with green and green. So it's this really wild like mashup project, but it looks great in my opinion. And I mean, you know, like I did a full video on it and that's kind of what I've gotten into and how I got into joinery. Um, along the way, I've also gotten really obviously into uh, tool maintenance, performance and sharpening, uh, specifically with Japanese tools. There's, they're so different than Western tools. And I mean, I, that's almost another half hour discussion. You know, I don't want to get into the whole Bubba Gump Shrimp Company sort of listing on that, but um, <laughs> there is... targeted. <laughs> He's triggered. Um, but... That's yeah, cool. that's that's the nuts and bolts of it. Like that's how I got into this. So so what's what's the attraction? Like what are what are you striving for in this category? Like is it the perfection? Is it the I don't know. You tell me. So I mean, personally it's the challenges to myself, really. You know, there's yeah. there's a lot of aspects to it. I mean, one is I, I like the flex of being able to say that like, yes, I did like say ninety percent of this in, by hand. Like no power tools involved. Mm-hmm. I hand cut my joinery itself. Um, so there's that. Um, I think as far as the creativity behind it too, that's another thing that I really enjoy. I like modifying things. I like creating stuff that's extremely unique and is traditional, but also has those non-traditional aspects. Um, there was a time actually sort of throwing back to the timber frame barn door. I didn't have a lot of Japanese saws at the time. So I was actually utilizing a lot of Western tools to create Japanese joinery. And I thought that was kind of this weird, hilarious flex, you know, just for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but right. I would say there's that. And really, you know, this is kind of a little bit of an overlooked thing. And I've talked about it, I want to say, on another podcast, but I'll, you know, dabble in it here a bit where for me, like I'm uh, I'm half Chinese, like my mom is from Singapore. And so growing up, like I saw all this Asian furniture a lot of stuff that we just had, you know, we imported a lot of stuff from when we moved back. Uh, I lived in Singapore for a couple of years myself. I was born here, but um, I felt like a sort of, I guess, cultural attachment to that style of like furniture and mm-hmm. to what I saw, cause it's what I grew right. up around. So then to sort of understand the history and Chinese and Japanese woodworking and furniture is very closely related. 
Um, but to see that and to see like what goes into it and to understand sort of like the, I guess, cultural aspects of it, like really touches to me because I feel like I do have a little bit of a cultural responsibility to be able to preserve that craft, understand these tools and sort of to dabble in the tool side of things. Those tools are all created by um, heirloom blacksmiths for the most part, like nothing really, the industrial revolution for the most part, when it comes to their hand tools has kind of blown by like they're still operating on the same wavelength that they did you know 50 60 to almost 100 years ago so the moment that we stop i guess appreciating and learning how to use those tools and to preserve them is the moment that those tools die out and i do feel at least a personal responsibility to be able to sort of push that knowledge to other people get other people excited about it and then to sort of like spread the gospel that is these Japanese tools. Sure. I think cool. it, I think it's really interesting that you're doing the hybrid and the mashup stuff because you're kind of showing what these tools could do. And I always, when I see people that are trying to be very pure to some um, historical art form, I always think that, you know, that it wasn't static. The people of that day were evolving and coming up with these new joints and new techniques and, and to use your words, kind of flexing on one another of their contemporaries. And so to be using those same tools and doing, you know, your own thing with them, I think is, is really cool because mm -hmm. it's, it, in my mind, it's what they would have done 150 years ago. Oh, yeah. They wouldn't have right. just done the same thing over and over. There would have been the student trying to make the slightly different joint or their own version of the master's joint. And so it just seems like more like a progression to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's funny that you bring that up because, so I was actually taking a class, it was either, no, it was two weeks ago, two weekends ago, let me be specific. And it was a class with uh, Dale Brotherton, who's a well-known... Um, He's got a very, you know, Western name because he is from here, but he did the Japanese carpentry apprenticeship in Japan. So he worked in Japan for, I think, about 30 years. And um, he was teaching a class specifically on layout. So as mundane as a subject as that is, that is such a huge deal for joinery just in general. Like where to cut is just as important as the actual cut itself. So he was teaching this idea, and this is a very common thread through Japanese uh, joinery, especially in carpentry aspects, is the concept of centerline. So they work with a lot of parts that are oblong, round, just misshapen, but they still utilize them. And the way that they do that is by matching everything up with the center line of each component. So if it's a beam, they find the center line. Uh, if it's a post, same concept. And then so long as your center lines are matching up when you're putting your joinery together, that means you've essentially done it correctly. So uh, I was asking him, and let me also rewind here, the way that, um, sorry, as far as centerline is concerned, the reason that they do it is because it sort of, I guess, allows for greater um, accuracy. And as far as centerline is, they try to ensure that, um, components are matching up absolutely correctly. And when you're talking about center line, um, there's so many different ways to find center, right? Like if I, I, PJ, you were talking earlier about like turning and, you know, using a lathe, like there's so many devices that are used for center and for accuracy. A lot of times, you know, 
one of the things that we do in woodworking is reference measurements. So you'll actually take a component and put it on another component. Like let's use dovetails, for example. You'll take your tailboard, stick it on the end, and then you'll draw out where your dovetails lie and that'll give you where your pins are. So, you know, there's reference measurements and it takes the math out of it ultimately. Um, so I was asking the instructor, I'm like, hey man, like there's so many different ways to find center. There's center finders, there's uh, carpenter squares, there's literally striking an X on the end of a square beam and finding that center point, like the points where they intersect. That's another way to find mm-hmm. center. So I, I sort of posed this question to this guy. I was like, hey, like, how do you find center? Because I'm genuinely curious. I'm like, you're essentially an expert at this. Like, you went through a 30 year apprenticeship, you construct buildings all over North America. You're the sort of like seminal um, Western guy for Japanese carpentry. How do you find center? And his answer was literally like, yeah, like I take my uh, Japanese carpenter square and I line it up and I just find the number and I divide it in half. And my head almost exploded. Because <laughs> another thing in Japanese carpentry is they also go through like all these great lengths to not use math. They're like, oh, like, you know, take this, line it up on this side, you know, find the number in the middle, but you're not really, you don't care what the number is. You just want to find the number that's half. And he's just like, well, I just sort of count the little ticks on the thing and I just divide it in half. And I was just mind blown. I'm like, this is ridiculous. But at the same time, I mean, the way he explained it was kind of interesting. He was just like, that's how he saw it in Japan. He's like, that's just how they did it. So to me, like I, the Japanese carpentry square is called a sashigane. And like, I use that all the time, but I also use just a sterret combination square, like a little carpenter square regularly because I trust in the accuracy of it. But I use that to find center and he'd never used that before for that purpose. So to him, it's just this super foreign concept, but to me, it's totally normal. And I'm like, wow, like my step is a thousand times faster than your step. So yeah, like there's this thing where tradition sometimes can get in the way of practicality, I suppose. And that's something I'm trying to, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to find and navigate a little bit, I suppose. I thought you were going to tell me that that he pulled out his cell phone and he's like, oh, I've got an app. I just use the camera and it finds the center for me. (laughs) That would not have surprised me after that, at that point, honestly. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. When Tanner was um, last talking, I like to create things with as few parameters as possible. Like, that's how I kind of create the things I create. It sounds like you are being creative within this tiny box sometimes. Um, Pun intended, maybe. Like, you have all of these, all this history of, like, the way things were done, the way things are, I want to just, in quotes, say, supposed to be done. Um, But you're still, it's really interesting that you're still finding a way to be creative within those parameters. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, to an extent. You know, I... I look at projects and and let me give a good example of sort of something I'm working on now. So I'm making a sofa table. So it's essentially this 13 inch deep table by 69 inches long. It goes on the backside of a sofa and the client just is like, Hey, I want a place for my kids to sit, not on the sofa, but I want them to be able to like eat dinner and watch TV. Right? Like that's the basic concept of it. Mm -hmm. So 
for the most part, it's a fairly simple build, right? Like I could probably slap it together with a domino in 20 minutes and just call it a day. But I sit there and I stare at it and I'm like, okay, how can I make this challenging to me, but also sort of like provide some value to them, like give them a conversation piece. And the idea that I had was a ship miter, which is this weird like sort of like through tenoned miter kind of contraption and again audio only platform so i'm not going to get too deep into like how the joinery sort of works but you know it's a little bit complicated and a little strange and i'd never done it before so i was like you know what like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it where stakes are high and it could possibly cost me money if i screw this up and you know like let's let's see how this goes and for the most part it's going fine like there's been a couple bumps on the road but Um, I am always just trying to challenge myself is really sort of, I guess the earmark there. And so I don't quite know if that answers your question, but like when I look at a project, I'm always trying to just figure out what's the challenge to me, what is going to make me a better woodworker? Because every single time I build something, I want to make sure that I am bettering myself like through each and every build. That's cool. Very cool. All right. <clears throat> well, is there is there anything else you wanted to tell us about joinery before we move on to Tom? Um, really quickly, honestly, it's not that hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know that seems kind of nuts, but like, and the biggest thing, and I, I was just talking about it a second ago because I said literally I took a class on layout. Uh, layout is key. Like, if you spend the time actually laying things out and being patient cutting to your line, pairing with a chisel to your line, it's it's fairly easy. It's slow, don't get me wrong. You know, that's the difference between a master and an apprentice or even a beginner, right, is the speed. But it's really not that difficult. So, like, honestly, self-belief and patience and perseverance is really the keys to, to joinery. Got it. Got it. Nice. And from there, we go to Tom. Tom? What's your personal I don't, experience? I don't have any of what he just said. So about a year ago, I bought a Domino, and I'll never do anything else. That's where I'm... <laughs> no, I, uh, I did take a timber framing class a couple years ago, and I need to go back to it. Um, it's kind of like a... It's more of a membership than a than a class fee. You can kind of go back every year. Is it... Um, sorry. COVID is it Shelter and Institute? Yada, yada. Yeah. Is that who you're using, or...? No. Uh, I'm up in the East... I'm in Connecticut, so it's... Um, uh, not Northeast Timber Framers, North North Ford, F-O-R-D, okay. North Ford Timber Framers. And it's basically, um, they basically donate the, donate everything to a heart foundation. Um, the guy just does it for fun. He, uh, well, he does it for work too a little bit, but he's, he's in his retirement years. Um, he'll go disassemble barns. He just loves the American history, which is only a few hundred years old, right? Like it's not that old. Uh, like you probably have saws older than that. And, um, but, uh, it was a lot of, that was the most joinery information I ever, uh, learned on purpose. So, (laughs) but I just, I don't make that stuff normally. So it's not, it's not a focus for me, but, um, the domino is an amazing tool though. (laughs) I have to say it's so fast and effortless, but it doesn't give you the design stuff that you would want, like what you're making, right? It doesn't, it's very limited on how you can make things. So do you want a secret? Um, So 
Yeah. I use my Domino primarily. I, I mean, I, I use it for the traditional applications, right? Like I'll use it to almost like a glorified biscuit joiner to like join up tabletops to make sure right. that like my reference faces are all, you know, aligned. But I use it to hog out mortises all the time. Like just free. Oh, yeah. Fun. Yeah. Cause the dust collection on it's awesome. So if you're just plunging right. into a beam or something like that to hog out like waste have, and then I'll just take a chisel and come clean up my edges. And I do that no all the time. I actually just upgraded Cheater. I used to ha- you've been exposed. Yeah. Tom, Tom <laughs> hey, hey, Tom, Tom, that's a secret that's a secret of the Japanese masters right there that he's sharing with you. Come on. <laughs> so they use dominoes. Well, yeah. Let me also be clear. So no, it's modern though. if you use a Japanese biscuit joiner. Yeah, modern yeah. Japanese yeah. <laughs> uh like timber framers and stuff, they use a lot of well, actually, so let me sort of rephrase this. Mephel. Western timber framers use a lot of modern Japanese construction tools. So Makita is obviously one of like the yep. largest manufacturers of Japanese power tools. So say 12-inch mm-hmm. um, hand planers to level out beams. Yeah. Or the my favorite is the chain, yes, the chain mortiser, right? Yeah. That thing is, yeah. if you ever use one, they're wicked fun. They're insanely dangerous yeah. looking. <laughs> but yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like an infinitely more dangerous domino is really what a chain mortiser is. But um, right, yeah, like, yeah, that's that's what it is. They're super cool. Um, I just upgraded though to a Domino XL. I, I did like a trade Z with a guy who wanted a five hundred, and I was like, oh, okay, like yes, by all means, I'll take it. So because you're doing much larger mortises typically. Well, right? also fun secret: the uh, XL you can put an adapter bit on it, so it can take the five hundred. Um, bits and I don't know right, if this guy right. knew that. So when he was like, "Yeah, I just want to," sw- yeah, but it's also a lot. It's if if you really only need the seven hundred or only need the five hundred, the seven hundred is a pretty hefty tool, and it's not as fun to sling around if you don't need. That yes, it's definitely it's much larger. It comes in a phenomenally larger yeah. sustainer. I discovered once it came in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, I use it for hogging out mortises all the time and it's it's awesome. Super clean finish. Um and as I said, like you just clean up the edges or really if you do it right, you only have to knock out the rounded corners with a chisel. Like the edges are perfect. Right. So yeah. That's pretty cool. I'll have to look into that. I'll Google that tip. Learn something. That's all I got, PJ. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Chris, for answering Tom's question. Uh, Chanda, uh, what kind of uh, personal history do you have with uh, joinery? Very little. Um, I've done very little woodworking that would be considered uh, fine woodworking. I always tell people that I've worked with wood, but I haven't done much woodworking. Most of what I've done is, you know, framing, remodeling, just very coarse woodworking. Um. I've made a lot of little, um, and this is really cheating as well, um, extremely. I've done a lot of um, slot and tab um, woodworking and with real fine plywoods and stuff where I laser cut all of the slots and tabs, which is just great because you just put it up in your in your CAD and whatever size slot or tab you make, you just do it like a three-view drawing. And then you just translate that over. And so you can just make arbitrarily sized slots and tabs. You just draw a guideline and you make a hole to match. And so you can make a lot of really interesting little shapes. 
Um, Hold on. Is this kind of like boxes and, the, and dinosaur skeletons as a child that I used to assemble? Like, does mm-hmm. anybody know what I'm talking about here? Like, where? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, 100%. yeah. Like, where yeah. you can no, literally that, that's, make an entire structure out of that? That's kind of what you're describing? Yeah, that, that sort of that stuff. That is amazing. Um, <laughs> and, and lasers just make that easy because you can do all your layout um, in CAD. So you're not laying out these very precise things and then trying to transfer the size of that tab to the size of that slot. You know, you, ha- you know what your curve is going to be, and you just draw everything out, and then whatever you can come up with. And I've done some fun, uh, fun stuff doing that, just various three-dimensional shapes that are joined together. And then recently, I transferred that into stainless steel, which was kind of fun to be doing joinery in stainless so I've done a couple projects at work where I did tab and slot structures um, that were all just assembled like a uh, like a puzzle, and then just tack welded enough to hold them together. And so that made for a, a an interesting way to make a metal structure that could survive high temperatures and was easy to just send off to send cut send, get the parts in like a kit, and then kind of precariously hold it all together with all the tabs and slots and you know slide, sliding tabs through slots that then went through and then slid perpendicular to the direction they went through the mm-hmm. slot to lock them in place so a whole bunch of little shelves inside of a unit that all went through with tabs and then you pushed the whole set of shelves forward and that locked them in place and then a back tabbed on to keep them from sliding back out so the whole thing was held together without any, without any welds, um, because we were getting distortion when we tried to weld it. So it, it, you know, you have like two screws at the end that hold this whole assembly of maybe 40, 50 pieces, 40, let's see, 20, like 46 pieces, and it's all, you know, you put it all together like a puzzle, That's awesome. and then a couple screws keep it from falling apart. So. I can't wait. I can't wait for like 150 years from now when some crazy guy like wants to recreate the stuff that you did and like keep it alive and then like pay way too much for a really old laser, but the tube is still good. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I just like think about that, like because what like the stuff that Chris is doing when they were doing it, it was new. And they were right, like they were creating this this right. uh, field. So I know they did it for hundreds of years, but um, you know, it's it's new at the time. Well, well, even if even a saw was new at one conception. time, you know, it wasn't like they right. were. You know, it was like I, I'm just hacking this out with some crude chisel, and then you come along right. and make this perfectly flat cut. But even you know, what you're that, describing, that, that Tanda, had to have been like what you're just descri- even what you're describing though. Like I'm picturing in my head as say like trying it with wood. They did it, and like it sounds really really cool. Like I can imagine say creating it's like an entirely knockdown shelving unit with like a tab and slot sort of structure. Just dude, dove, dovetail dinosaur skeleton. You got to do it. <laughs> You got to do it. I'm just, I, I, I'll gift you that. Yeah, the do, the dovetail dinosaur. Just a bunch of tusk and tendon yeah. joints, like, that are, you know, all, all there. Yeah, like, are you could make the dovetailed platypus. 
And actually what you're describing isn't too far off. Like, I mean, I've done like a few like Tusk Tenon uh, builds. I actually did one kind of recently where, yeah, there's like slots and things are intersecting and you're using these little wedge tenons to try to like draw things kind of like closer and everything's knocked down. Like that's actually a really big right. part of uh, not just Japanese furniture. I mean, Japanese furniture does use some adhesives from time to time, but a lot of like what we see sort of on the, I guess, like mainstream media kind of thing is entirely knockdown stuff. And kind of that goes to what PJ was talking about earlier about homes. Like they're making houses and, you know, castles, quote unquote, that are entirely knocked down. Like you can literally move them somewhere. So what you're describing right. as far as like this, you know, sort of tab system is kind of totally in line with that, but just in a different medium. Right. So, right. Yeah. I kind of obsess over minimum, minimum unique pieces to the point that I probably drive some of my coworkers crazy with designs that were functional long before I stopped iterating on them. Um, <laughs> Where, like, of those 46 pieces, the left side is a mirror of the right side, and every shelf left side is a is a flip of the right side, and the piece that holds in the back um, can be used on two different things. And so it's, like, 46 pieces, but it's only four unique pieces. And then yeah. it's cheap to make because I just get a lot of the pieces made. And if I can find a way to make one piece poke through the other and then become the foot for the unit or something, then, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, that that's what makes it interesting for me. And, and something you said, Chris, earlier was it's like, for some reason, there has to be a component of learning something new or trying something I haven't done before. Um, because if I'm just making a variant of something I've already done, then I'll usually try to find some way to challenge myself by making it a little different or making, you know, if I'm not learning, then then I don't feel like I'm moving forward. Yeah, and so. you said something interesting mm-hmm. there too with like sort of like the corresponding pieces because I know that a lot of times when I'm designing a piece of furniture, I like to take, say, if there's an angle that I've used on a bevel somewhere, like, uh, and let's assume for mm-hmm. the sake of argument that is a 10 degree bevel that I'm like using on like say the edge of a tabletop, I'll then take that and translate it to the angle that I'm using, say, for the splay on my legs or, you know, like, I'm always, like, matching these oh, yeah. angles. So, mm-hmm. you know, what you're doing where you're sort of, like, kind of, like, I don't quite want to say mass-producing pieces, but, like, mass-producing components, but then arranging them in such a way that creates a cool visual aesthetic is totally in line with that. Like, because you're creating something that is going to have some sort of, I guess, eye allure, right? Like, when you look at it, it's going to be visually pleasing because there are matching components that are arranged in such a particular way so that's that's sweet yeah repetition is i'm just really big on on repetition and if there's i i I work with someone who will use three different types of screws in an assembly (laughs) and and i will find the one screw that'll be slightly overkill for for one thing but you know but sufficient for everything else and find a way to use that one style of, of screw. And, and we probably drive one another crazy because he'll like do a, some kind of mathematical analysis to find the smallest possible screw you could use for each portion of the assembly and then order the five separate kinds of screws. And I'll find out what the strongest you know, one has to be 
and I'll do everything with that. Um, so it's just kind of a matter of personality. But uh, that's that's kind of my limited joinery. I haven't done much fine woodworking, so I'm going to pass it over to PJ. He, he's sitting there just biting his lip. I think he's caught a fly. It, it was a ladybug, but that's okay. Oh. We don't have to talk okay. about it. Um, <laughs> they, they fly. My, um, my practical experience, as far as joinery goes, is mostly like, half laps or a box joint like that's that's what i've i've physically done um maybe i don't even know is rabbiting even considered a joint it's a technique but i have is it a joint um i've sure. i've done that potatoes and rabbits yeah i mean i've done that um in in some small amount uh i i mean I'm still. I still have to complete the Japanese tea house shed that I've been building since 2018. I mean, it has walls and doors, but they don't look like they're supposed to look. You know, I just that their thing. You know, decisions were made. Uh, there was very little in the way of joinery. This is weird. So it's a Japanese style shed, but there's no real Japanese joinery involved because. First off, I have no training in, in Japanese joinery. I love it, but I don't have any training. Um, I did try to do research on how to build a Japanese roof, and there is zero videos online that tell you how to build a Japanese roof like the Japanese build it. If there are out there, I, I couldn't find them. So I had to do it for trial and error. Um, Chris is holding up a book. Yeah, that, that book... That's not online, is what I'm trying to tell you, Chris. I couldn't reach the book. There was no, oh, no video of the book. Yeah, there's there's plenty of books. So that's a funny thing that you're bringing up, and I, I don't mean to interrupt you for too long, so I'm going to try to keep this short. But um, Japanese woodworking, internet-wide, is not super informative. It's more demonstrative. So you'll see like a lot of videos with like quick shots of like guys pulling a hand plane and like hammering chisel, but none of it's like particularly instructive. So the way you yeah. end up having to like soak up this knowledge is either through literature or taking uh, classes, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or group classes. So, yeah. Well, um, I went to school on it for an entire summer building the roof, trial and error. <laughs> and um, I'm not Three saying summers. that it's it's a work of art or anything, but it's been up there for two two and a half years now, I think something like that uh hasn't fallen down yet so i did something right so like that so there's that um however goals goals uh i have a huge affinity for japanese culture and and um style i guess is the best way to put it um i bought this 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 is very deep for me so about around 2000 i bought a forge and a bunch of other tooling because I was going to make a katana, like traditional style um, brick oven in the ground forge. Like I really wanted to do it up. Like I had, I had done all kinds of research. This was way before like the, the blacksmithing resurgence for makers and everything. This is years and years, over 20 years this ago. Before forged in fire. Yeah. Way before any of that. <laughs> yeah. um, I had in the nineties. This was, this was closer to the time of quest for fire. This was okay. I had started <laughs> In the 1990s, 
there was a mail order catalog for authentic Japanese katana that were like the low end was two grand. But if you wanted a nice one, it was closer to 20. Like that's this this was, this was they didn't even have a website. You got a pamphlet, which I probably still have somewhere. But anyway, the 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 Japanese culture has always been very attractive, and the joinery is very very um, desirable for my eyes. I guess is the way to put it. It's attractive. I have a I don't want to say a reputation, but I have desires for attractive things to surround me. If you look at all of the um, restorations I do. They all have an attractive element in them. There's some detail in there that attracts people to it because you either haven't seen it like that before or it's been presented in such a way that you just want it. You want to touch it. Like it's one of those things that makes you happy to see them. And I feel like the Japanese joinery does the same thing in many aspects. And it also has opportunities for things that you wouldn't think are available so let me let me explain what i mean by that i like hidden stuff secret compartments things like that and there's a lot of things with japanese joinery that could be made to look like it's part of the joint but in fact is like a secret button to open up a panel or something but you would never know because the whole thing looks like that so how are you supposed to know, you know, which which one of those wedges is actually a lever that you pull out and it pops open a door? You know, you, you, you wouldn't know because you'd have to have the secret. And that's like one of those things I want to get to. I want to get to that point where I can make these things, you know, where there's more. It's It looks beautiful, but there's an extra added element. And... I feel like that's that's to me that's one of the one of my one of my goals. Like your goal is to challenge yourself to actually make the joints. My goal is not to master the joints. It's to utilize them to make something that looks visually attractive but hides something that's even more attractive. That's cool. So that's that's where I'm at. So um, PJ, if you want a really quick ego boost, like your Japanese uh, tea house shed I mean, it was one of like the sort of like catalyst things that actually like inspired me to go like a little bit deeper down the Japanese woodworking rabbit hole, to be completely fair. Oh, wow. Like I remember seeing it and I was like, all right, like that's super dope. I want to do something like that and I want to try to do something like that better. And I haven't, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, it's, it's there. Like I, I do want to do like a proper, you know, Japanese timber frame style shed, uh, here, you know, just for like, honestly, like my lawn tools and stuff, like, you know, things like that. Like, but seeing that and seeing like that roof design and just how you did that and the way it came out. And I listen, like, I know you're saying like, it's not perfect. It's not what I guess, you know, is like traditional, but it's, it's really, really cool, man. Like, and that moved me. Like, I remember seeing it and I was like, this is awesome. Like, this is something that I want to do. And I mean, no offense, but like, I was like, I want to do this at a higher level, at a more traditional, like, oh, yeah. you know, level, just because like that, you know, it pushes you. And I think that's one of the coolest things about seeing stuff like that is that like, for me, like I'm a naturally competitive personality. So when I see really cool stuff, I'm like, yes. I want that and I want more of it. <laughs> so, 
I mean, if you want something that's more traditional, I think it was just like uh, two weeks ago, I saw um, the Samurai Carpenter did that. Like he built, I don't know if it was a shed, but it was about the size of a shed. He was building out the frame um, with somebody else. Like they did it in like a day in the rain. You know, and um, they did, it was like a two-step, two-level roof. It wasn't a roof like mine. It was a flat roof, but then the other side had like another, um, it was like an off-center, I don't know how to explain it, like a two-level roof. And they put the entire thing up, structure, in like a day. It didn't have any walls or anything when they were got done, but everything had like um, like the, the, the ends that were coming off of the, the structure were actually like gigantic pegs that they had hammered in to hold the beams in place. So it was like it was like a it was like a two or three foot. Um, it, it looked like a just like an overhang, but they hammered it in place and then it locked in everything else. It was like really really awesome construction. Hmm. Um, I don't remember. I saw it on Facebook. I don't know if he put up a YouTube video for it, but. If you really want to go look at that. Yeah, if you really want to geek out on like some of the Japanese construction stuff, there's a really good follow. His Instagram handle is Shantaro Kichi. I hope I can spell this out. C H A N T A R O K I C H I. And if that doesn't get your listeners there, I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the guy's name is uh, Kokichi san, and I interacted with him somewhat regularly his english is okay but at least usable um but he is a what they call a daiku so he's like a master japanese carpenter like he does construction level work so he integrates power tools hand tools and he was constructing a like an entire roof like and the way that they do it it's kind of funny for i can't remember what it was for if it was like a museum or like you know a quote-unquote castle but they construct the entire thing indoors. So they do the entire thing in his shop, get it to the point that it's pretty much perfect. And then as you were saying, PJ, they disassemble the whole thing, then bring it out to the job site and then reassemble it on site, like on the actual building. And just to watch that entire process of him literally doing this monster roof with all these wacky curves and, you know, all the shingling, everything, it's, it's so impressive and candidly it's so humbling too like to see that level of craftsmanship and even just simple things like him sharpening his chisel and plain blades every morning i i mean at a level that is so fast like i think about like how long it takes me to properly sharpen a chisel and a plain blade like i can probably do one from start to finish that's relatively beat up in about a half an hour and this guy is cranking him out like 15, 20 minutes, you know, just he's a machine. Like he's he's done the apprenticeship. He's done the training. He's been doing the practice. You know, it's his livelihood. This is what it is. And it's beautiful. That's there's a little bit of irony there. This is way before I knew that they were building things and then disassembling them and putting putting them back together. When I built that roof, I built it in my driveway. I built the entire thing in the driveway because I didn't want to build it on top of the shed. I didn't know what I was doing. So I like I had to be able to like stand there and like measure things and try things out. So I built the whole roof and then once I had everything done like I had everything like uh, hash marked or labeled A, A B C one, two, three. Yeah, of course. And 
once it was done, then I disassembled the entire thing in chunks and then I reassembled it on top of the shed, which was super sketchy because I had a whole driveway to stand on when I was building it. There's nothing on top of the shed. It was just a box. Like it was just air. There was no, like I was, I'm like, how am I going to do this? Like the beam that holds everything up had to be suspended in the air. I didn't have a crane. I didn't have anything to hold it there. I was like, how the f am I going to do this? This is like, I, I thought, I didn't really think about it when it was on the driveway. On the driveway, I had a table and I think a bunch of blocks of wood that put it up to the level I needed it to be at. And this was like an arbitrary level that I arrived at once I found the curve for the corner supports. So the corner supports were the most difficult part. They were, they were curved by specific angles I cut into six by six beams. Was it six? Might've been four by four, I can't even remember now. But once I got the, the, the corner supports curved, that determined how high the beam had to be. So everything was like step by step. There was like, I tried to plan it, but I couldn't because I didn't know, I had no training and I had no references. Everything was completely an open space. So this was the only way I could I could do it unless I had somebody else come and show me and there was there was nobody. Yeah. So, so I the class I was taking the other week it was kind of interesting because it sort of touched on something like that and about like labeling components and how they do it. Um their blueprint system sort of the way their construction blueprint system it's done on a grid. So to obviously they have Japanese characters that they're using to write like letters and numbers but corresponding like if we were to take it in our system they just have a simple box grid and it's like a b c d e and then one two three four five and so all the intersecting points it would be say like a1 a2 b1 b2 and so on and so forth mm. so mm -hmm. the way that they actually mark the components all the way across like and even upwards because they'll just have this like stacked if there's multiple stories is and it's funny the way that it translates is like this component lives at a street and like three Avenue, you know, and like, that's kind of like how they organize it. So, um, and everything's written in ink. So that's another kind of defining thing with Japanese stuff is like when you're using Western, uh, components, Western construction, a lot of stuff is chalk lines, it's pencils, you know, like there's not like any sort of permanence to it, but when, uh, you're using Japanese construction, they use ink, which is sumi. So they have this uh, Japanese ink line, which is the sumi tsubo, and that's how they snap their center line. That's how they literally take and mark like what each component is, and that's what this guy was showing us. He was like, "Yeah, like no matter what it is, each component in each part of each component is measured and labeled. So that way, when you're on the job site, you know, like, hey, this component here is on E." E Street, 5 Avenue, and then those meet. And that's how they match everything up. It's it's really, really interesting when you get into the nuts and bolts of it. And somebody like that, I mean, he's, like I said, he did the apprenticeship and he worked as a Japanese carpenter for upwards of, you know, 30 years. And then he's still constructing here. I mean, the guy's got to be in his, I want to say, like late 60s at this point. He's still designing and working. Um, but, like, just to see that, God, it's it's so humbling and it's really like inspiring. Like it really drives you to want, you know, a higher level of work, even if you won't achieve that specific level. 
I got to be honest with you, Chris. I, I wasn't going to say anything before, but this guy apprenticed for 30 years. He's he's not very good. He should have been a master way before then. I'm that, that's that's just that's way too slow. Way too slow. He should have been a master by 10. You so know what I mean, like 30 years. He's he's just he's in the remedial <laughs> Japanese classes. That's all I'm trying to he say. He takes a short bus to a Japanese uh, yeah. construction sites. He's he's on the short the short wagon with the mule, not the donkey. Okay, he's. I mean, come on, seriously. He should have been a master like four times by now. It's not, not, I don't know. I'm not listening to him. Not, not doing it. Anyway, um, I would like to get some of that snapper ink you were talking about. That sounds like some cool stuff I could get into um, for snapping lines. I, di I didn't know snapper ink was out there, but now I'm interested. I'm going to have to find some. But um, I think we're going to wrap this segment up and, and go to commercial. Well, sucky darn, I think it's time for one of them old-timey commercial interludes and stuff. Hey, this is Chet down at Johnson's Hardware. Are you doing a lot of wood joinery? Are you tired of your friends looking at your blades and thinking, man, that blade looks dull? Well, here at Johnson's, we've got just the thing for you. Johnson's Look Sharp Markers. The perfect solution. Use the king size marker right on the edge of your blade to get that looking sharp edge you always wanted in just two seconds. Now, if you got some friends that are a little picky and they like to nitpick, you might want to get the extra fine marker to get that blade extra crisp right at the edge. Do not smell or you may end up cutting your nose hairs. Uh, blades may appear sharp, but not really outside your shop. Not for use on dull clothing. Skin contact may cause fungus. You can find our sharp markers in our cutlery aisle next to the cheese graters for only $14.99. You can contact us at patreon.com forward slash makerskills. What the heck, Nabbit? I need to get me one of them. Anyone know what street Patreon is on? I need to go. All right. It's time for crossbreeding. Chris, what skill goes well with joinery? Oh. What skill goes well with joinery? I would say sharpening. Tool maintenance, sharpening. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was that was gonna be my answer. Thanks for that. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, um, okay. You're most welcome, Tom. Yeah, Tom. Uh, what what skill? Goes I think well? PJ should immediately go next. I think you should go next, PJ. I'm not I going next, Tom. Right now would you. be the best time. Tom, uh, I'll go next then. Chris said it. <laughs> go ahead, Tanda. I'm gonna I'm gonna say careful layout. Oh no! <laughs> I gave that answer away earlier, so you're all welcome. <laughs> Uh, well, it's a good show, guys. Thanks for having me. I will see you next week. Now nah, you're not getting off that easy, Tom. <laughs> what skill goes well with joinery? Oh, it. I literally was going to say layout because Chris already talked about it. Uh, penciling? That's the same as layout. Let me think. Uh, Ink snapping. You know what? Milling. I think I think starting with well-milled wood is a, is a good way to get good joinery. So milling. Okay. Well, sure, I'll take that. You know. I'll, I'll take um, I'm gonna oh, go. I'm gonna go with my backup, which is uh, sawing or cutting, because um, how else are you gonna get those joints? Got to be able to saw. It's an important part of the joinery. The sawing is not a skill. That's an activity. Well, that's why I said cutting. So cutting or sawing. Do you guys want me to you know, break Tom for like five seconds while you know you all stew, stew <laughs> about something? 
because it's great tom all all you want yeah so it's funny because like tom you you said you've taken some uh actual timber framing classes right yeah yeah so like you know you were talking about milling like what's the difference between square rule and mill rule uh i don't know so I mean, I'll sort of oversimplify this, but like, you know, mill rule is like sort of operating under this assumption that everything is perfect out the mill, right? Like you have a perfectly square beam or, you know, board or whatever the case may be. Right. Square rule sort of operates on this idea that like within your oblong component that there is a perfectly square tenon or shape that is going to be used. So milling, in fact, is not actually a very important part of joinery, <gasps> weirdly enough. All right, but and that gets into the center line mm, concept too. All right, so in the tim- let me ask you this: so you let make me, a square let, tenon somewhere in the body of the of the milled lumber, yes. right? And then the milled lumber doesn't matter anymore. That's true. So when all right, so we we would look at a timber and we would pick a we would pick like two reference yes. faces, I suppose. Correct, and then. No matter, and let's say it was supposed to be like an eight inch beam, you don't care what the beam actually is. You just work from the reference face and you go out to that eight inch mark and you work like, I don't know, you'll do like a shoulder inset to make it an eight inch beam and then you'll put your mortise through there, yes, right? You, See, you're, I learned you're stuff. It. And you're right. Center though. rule, oh, sorry, center line is kind of a very similar concept where you're striking these center lines on all your four faces. And even on round components, you can still do the same thing. And you're just trying to match up, like, those center lines. So even as right. you, like, whittle down the ends, like, with tenons and, you know, that sort of thing, you're just trying to find that square component on either end or, like, your mortise, however it's going to correspond. Voila. So, all right, let me, let me, let me, I didn't think this was going to be a hot topic. When you're doing the sofa table, yes. right? You are still using that method. You are not milling your lumber to a specific dimension, or you are, but you're still using that method anyway. It depends. So on the sofa table, I am. I prefer, if at all possible, to have perfectly square components. Like, it just makes life a lot easier. Right, of course. However... No, right, but when you're talking about building a... Oh, oh yeah. So, however, like because of the way that the joinery is set up, like really what I care about and it's kind of a cantilevered table in a sense. So like I want to say the leg post is about eight and a half inches wide. The actual table top is about 13 inches wide. So I am Mm -hmm. more concerned about everything coming from the back. So that's where those two components are going to be flush. So everything that I'm measuring off of is off a reference face, which is that rear component like moving forward. Sidebar, Chris. Chris, um, I'm I don't I'm not claiming to follow everything that you said, but what it sounded to me like was Tom's wrong. This, did I did I get that? He was close. I mean, he's not entirely wrong, but he was at least. No, he's wrong. He's either right or he's wrong. He's, and it sounds like okay, he's wrong. his I'm original just... statement was wrong. Very okay, wrong. Okay, that's all I wanted to hear. That's all. Okay, just just double checking. Oh, it looks like he's getting red in the face. Tom, Tom, did, did you have something that you wanted to say? Yeah, yeah. I'm g- well, I'm going to change my answer now that I've been I've been uh, embarrassed publicly. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with uh, layout. I'm going to go with layout. That's what that Tanda work? said. Oh, good Tom. answer. That's a good answer. Good answer. That's a good answer. You can't take Tanda's answer. <laughs> 
There, there's a rule. You could have just said yeah. operating yeah. off your reference faces. That would have been also like a. That's not that's a what skill. I meant. That's I not a skill. I mean, <laughs> if you knew what we were talking about, PJ, you would understand that. That's what I meant. I know exactly I, what you're yeah. talking about, Tom. Every single word. <laughs> And now it's time for Gimme Your Best Guest. Yeah. It's time for Gimme Your Best Guest. So, Chris, we know that joinery is your number one skill. What is the number two skill in your toolbox? Listen, if you say milling, I'm walking out of here. I'm just, that's, I've, I've had enough. Tom, you shut your mouth, Tom. He can say whatever he wants. No, um, it's sharpening. Sharpening is, I... Let me tell you, I preach the gospel of sharpening a lot. I mean, PJ, you've been following me for a number of years now. I mean, I would probably say that like 80% of my posts are literally me saying like, hey, if you think you need to sharpen, you needed to sharpen two days ago. Like that's... I've seen many a post where you're sharpening stuff. Yeah, that's that's you're like you're sharpening and then you're then you're showing it after the sharpening. Like you're shaving stuff off. You're like, look at this. So yeah, I I can confirm that that's true. Yeah, hundred percent. Now, are are you of the opinion that it that sharpening is like the religion, or that it is just something that has to be done? So, this is a kind of a funny story, but the way that I sort of heard this is like through like another actual Japanese master, not me, a Japanese, a real Japanese master, where sharpening, it's. I guess, personal, right? Like it's what's acceptable for you, you know, like what is an acceptable level of sharpness for you that you can work with. And for me, like I instantly know the feedback's obvious. Like as soon as it starts not traveling the grain in a way that I would like to, it seems to be catching, especially with a pairing chisel, like a pairing chisel or a slick, you get that feedback instantly. It's just not cutting the way it needs to. It's traveling the grain in a weird way. Like, you know, you're like, okay, like I should have sharpened X amount of passes ago. So that's kind of, it's a personal thing. Like if you are okay with the level that your chisels and planes are at, then that's fine. But if you're not, like if you're getting tear out, if things are just not performing at the optimum level that you were comfortable with accepting, then yeah, go get your butt back on those stones because you got some work to do. That was a very flowery way of not answering my question, Chris. <laughs> As your attorney, I accept this uh, critique. <laughs> so, which is it? Is it is it is it the religion, or you have to do it? What do you love doing it, or is it just a means to an end? You have to do it, but I will say there is a therapeutic aspect to it. Like I do thoroughly enjoy sharpening certain items. Okay. So a good example. So Tom hates it. <laughs> Tom hates it. He'd, 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 he wants like disposable blades. I knew there was something blades. about this guy. Well, yeah. Let me give a good yeah. example. Sharpening <laughs> a Japanese plane blade is a very comfortable and therapeutic experience. It's got a... He, I don't use jigs to sharpen, which is not a flex. It's just a Japanese tradition kind of thing. But a Japanese plane blade has a monster bevel. So when you were sharpening the bevel, it's really easy. There's no hand cramps. Mm. You're not sitting there cussing the entire time. Very positive. Yes. Feel. It's very, mm-hmm. it's very intuitive, right? Like you're like, oh, this makes sense. This is how this should be done. You try to sharpen a three millimeter Japanese chisel that is like used for like cleaning up channels 
on like a very tiny groove it's really annoying it's very frustrating <laughs> like you just want to take this thing and throw it after a while because after five passes you've all of a sudden skewed your edge like so there is sort of a give and take to that but for the most part it is necessary like by all accounts it is absolutely necessary it's something you need to do your enjoyment aspect of it is what you make of it you know and for me personally i take a lot of pride in how i can sharpen my tools and the level i can get them to perform at so for me like it's a very enjoyable process in that sense gotcha all right all right acceptable answer acceptable answer. okay so what is skill number three um so finishing and um i use I, I dabble in a number of different finishes, but my favorite and I suppose most traditional finish are drying oil finishes. And so when I say drying oil finishes, what I'm talking about is primarily pure tongue oil, hemp oil, and walnut oil. Like that's like the, the main three. So they're mm. pure, all natural oil finishes. Tongue oil is something that's been used for thousands of years. I mean, ancient Chinese furniture mm -hmm. is finished with tongue oil, multiple coats of it. Um, it is a uh, cross-linking polymer, so tongue oil can actually become entirely waterproof if you apply enough finishes and stack them correctly. And it is a gigantic pain in the you-know-what to do it correctly. It takes absolutely forever to dry but if you have the patience it is amazing like i actually have a cutting board that i did and i hate cutting boards i don't really make them i used to make a ton of them once upon a time but i did a traditional tongue oil finish on a cutting board once upon a time i've never had to reapply any finish to this cutting board in six years and it is well still waterproof like i can Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. I'll take a video of like literally me just running water over the top and you can see the water just beating up and rolling off. Like, Well, you know, I mean, let's be honest. Any oil that you can apply with your tongue is obviously going to be the best kind. You know, clearly. you're licking it right. in the process. Clearly. Yeah, it know. gets into now, all the pores. I mean, how else are you going to do that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, I, I do have a question because this has always been confusing for me for finishes that I haven't used. For any of the oils you mentioned... Once you've applied that, is it then okay to put a wax coat on there or would a wax coat not work because it's oil? So a wax coat, and actually a lot of those finishes do from various manufacturers come in versions that are blended with wax. So um, I'm gonna plug Real Milk Paint Company here. They make a walnut oil with a wax blend. and Not sponsored. Yeah, so they, it, it's totally fine. Like there's... Essentially, that oil will penetrate through and harden, and then the wax is just a top coat pore filler. So that's that's sort of the, I guess, nuance of it. With tongue oil, um, actually, the Maloof finish, or what is commonly known as the Maloof finish, is a two-stage finish. So that finish is, if I recall correctly, stage one is, oh God, I feel like I'm like taking the SATs right now. It's a little bit of a quiz. Um, mineral oil, oil, ah, mineral oil, um, tongue oil, and wipe on poly. And then second stage is beeswax and uh, wipe, or sorry, beeswax and tongue oil, if I'm not mistaken. 
So the correct answer was organic mm. beeswax. I'm going to have to give you an A minus on this. I'm sorry, Alex, for 400. Um, but in any case, yeah, <laughs> like the idea is that like it becomes like a top coat pore filler kind of additive. I mean, it doesn't necessarily affect the curing aspect of the previous coats, but it is another layer that can be buffed. And always you have to take the excess off because ultimately these oils need oxygen to cure. So they need airflow. So one of the, I guess, common misconceptions with finishing is, hey, like my previous coat is still a little bit damp. Let me just put another coat on which is then going to cure, and then that's going to seal that other stuff in there. And that's not a realistic thing. What actually ends up happening is that outside coat does cure, but then your inside oils don't receive the proper oxygenation, so therefore that oil goes rancid. And who wants rancid oil in anything, to be frank? Tom, did you hear that? Did you get all that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm writing it down. Okay, just checking. Just checking. All right, <clears throat> I think we've delved uh, deep enough into that. I'm just going to go out and say my go-to finish is wax, because I like wax. Uh, what is skill number four? So, um, does skill number four have to be absolutely related to woodworking? No, it could nope. be anything. Not at all. Any totally skill. Different. Any, Any skill. skill. So, yeah. My, my my number four skill is dodging PJ's phone calls. <laughs> he's, he's very good at it, too. He just doesn't answer. He ghosts me all week long. So, he does it with text, too. Uh, skill number four tangentially relates to skill number two. I'm really into cooking, weirdly enough. And um, mm-hmm. I am a big fan of sharpening my knives to be able to make sure that I have, like, absolutely mm. impeccable mise en place. And using a fancy French word there. So, not Japanese. No. So, does the Japanese thing translate to the kitchen, or is it all French in there? I'm, honestly, it's just I'll make anything. I don't care. Like, I just love food. I'm like a deep, yeah, sure. like deep inside. I'm a big, big fat fatty. Like, I just love all the foods, everything. Like, put it all <laughs> in my face. Like, I don't care. So, yeah, that's that's skill number four. Um, anything. Yeah, cooking is a good answer. I I consider myself to be a chef. I'm one of those guys. I'm not trained. But you take me into somebody's kitchen, I will take all the ingredients, I'll make you something unbelievable. So Absolutely. It's a, yeah. It's a, it's a good skill to have. It's a, it's becoming to me, it's becoming a lost art. Some of these people I talk to, everything is microwave dinners. So let me tell you, I like I don't use a lot of TikTok. Like I, I don't spend a ton of time on TikTok, but when I do spend time on TikTok, ninety five percent of my for you page is food content. And I don't know if it's just like mm-hmm. speaking to the deep, big, fat, fatty inside of me, but like it just knows that like I am craving food content. And let me tell you, the food content on there is exceptional. Like I'm actually watching people using proper knife skills and actually utilizing the tools in their kitchen in an appropriate way. It's, I, I think it's there. I think it's out there. But yes, I do also agree with the UPJ in the sense that like, for an example, my wife like loves box mac and cheese and knows how to cook very little. And I say that confidently because I know she's never going to listen to this podcast. So, you know, like, <laughs> uh, let me mess with her. <laughs> yes, make sure. LM underscore one one eight. 
<laughs> yeah, so there is a population of folks that does not care about cooking, but there's also a pa- like a huge population, just like the woodworking community, I imagine, that is really, really passionate about it, and they're just regular lay folks that are out there like mucking around with this stuff. And so, yeah, there's a ton of good stuff. Well, there's there's a middle ground too, and um, I'm going to sort of throw my mom under the bus here. My mom is a saint. Um, she's she's 76. She's way on up there. She's been cooking for years, but she cannot cook without a recipe. If she doesn't have a recipe to follow, she can't do it unless it's something like you know grilled cheese. Obviously, that she could do. But anything that requires more than like three ingredients. She has to have a recipe or it just, it can't be done. She has to know like the temperatures have to be written down. There has to be steps. And to me, I'm like, uh, what ingredients do I have? Oh, I don't have this. I'll just substitute this in. And I'll just, I'll just put, I'll throw things together that just kind of make sense. Just like, oh yeah, this, this seems like it would taste good. And I mean, out of, I, I started cooking when I, my mom wouldn't let me cook when I was little. I wanted to cook and she would only let me cook outside because she insisted i was going to heat up the oven but i wanted to cook from like 10 up so that's like when i started that's when my interest in making food started and so for the last let's say uh 38 years i have all the things i've ever made i've had like three complete failures everything else has been like spectacular and uh, i'll tell you i'll tell you one that i've never seen before but it's super easy and everybody will love it if you love tuna fish. So everybody's had tuna fish sandwiches, okay? Yes. You get the you get the tuna out of the can, you mix it with mayonnaise and onion. Some people throw some celery in there. I don't prefer the celery. Uh, I substitute celery for uh, with parsley. I like parsley. But here was the thought I had, and I had this last year, I tried it for the first time brilliant i love japanese food and i love sushi so i have tuna steak in the freezer raw tuna and i usually take it out i'll sear both sides with a little bit of you know um sometimes soy sauce but mostly i use uh, teriyaki teriyaki glaze but it occurred to me i'm like hey wait a minute terry the tuna steak tastes way different than the canned tuna canned tuna tastes like complete garbage I wonder if I chopped up the tuna into little itty bitty bits and then I made the same recipe for a tuna fish sandwich and I put it on bread, how would it taste? I did that and it is like a party in your mouth. It is not like any tuna fish sandwich (laughs) you've ever had in your life. And I'm like, oh my God, why didn't I think of this years ago? And it's just because you left out all the eyeballs and fins. It was also because you probably didn't boil it for a thousand hours till like every possible parasite is killed. Right. Like you probably cooked it to like what, like a medium. No, it's not cooked. Oh, you just raw, cooked. straight, raw, just raw. Even this better, is raw tuna, yeah. raw tuna, mayonnaise, diced up onion, little bit of parsley, and then I had a toasted uh, chocolate chip brioche. You know what you created, basically? Is you created a non-spicy tuna Sushi roll. sandwich. Yeah, that's all it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but but it's awesome. Yeah, it is it's brilliant. Awesome. It's, it's like, yeah. so I'm just saying, like, that's the kind of stuff that'll just spontaneously happen. I'll just think of something like that, and I'm like, oh, let me try it. 
And I've never seen that. If that exists somewhere else, someone has heard of it, please send in a message and let me know. I've never heard of anybody else doing that. So I I was going to say that uh, my version of that would be I'd have some leftover sushi. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, I'm just going to eat this on some bread. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that but that would be a lie because I would never just have take a bunch of sushi. California rolls and smash it in like I, a hoagie roll. I would, I would never leave with sushi. <laughs> yeah. That would be silly, or not inside you me. Eat them at Subway. So to your point though, PJ, like when you're talking about like this idea of like not having any failures, like a funny thing, like I don't think I've had a ton of failures in cooking, but one of the things that I've always done, and I don't know if this is just from having a tiger mom as a mom, but like I eat my failures. So, like, if something, like, is bad or, like, just, like, not necessarily, like, inedible, but just, like, I know this isn't good, but I made it and I spent the time to do it. Like, I'm putting yeah. this in my mouth and I'm tasting my failure. <laughs> so Oh, yeah, you still like, eat it. You still eat it, but you want to remember that for the future. Like, okay, exactly. this is an experiment gone wrong. Yeah, like, I'm just I'm, sitting there flagellating myself, like, you know, like, over each shoulder, just trying to, I, yeah. I, I'll tell you one that I haven't tried yet. That I, it's been on my mind. It's another one that's come around. And then we're going to move on to your last skill. So I have been trying to come up with a way to improve the taste of mashed potatoes. Okay? And I make these... You're making mashed potatoes wrong. <laughs> no, I want I want more flavor. <laughs> I want more flavor in the mashed potatoes. So Yeah, you're making them wrong if you don't think there's enough flavor in mashed potatoes. <laughs> Let it finish. Come on. Possible, we got Tom. Yeah. Continue. That, that's possible. Oh, sorry. Continue. Oh, so sorry. So, I have I, I have a very simple recipe for uh, roasted potatoes, like diced up roasted potatoes. Oh, I see roasted where potatoes. My yard reaction. So, yeah. My idea is to roast the potatoes big enough so that I get a little crisp on the outside, but then they're still soft enough that I could put them in a bowl with a mixer and mash them. And make mashed oven roasted potatoes, and I'm like, that's got to be good. That's because the oven roasted potatoes are awesome. But if I can make them mashed, I think I would just oven I roast would, potatoes and then, and then pour the drippings from so that into my I might have mashed an, potatoes and make them make them normal. I might have an idea for you here, PJ. So riddle me this: torch the outside of them, like huh. yakisugi, like the outside of your you know potatoes. Then boil them, but only, well, cut them up and then boil them, but only boil them in enough water that, like, basically just barely covers them. So essentially that water is going to reduce down, and then you mash it with that remaining water. So that way you're not losing that, like, I guess, liquid that has reduced with all your good, delicious bits, and you might be able to preserve that outside charred, crispy whatever it's not going to be crispy necessarily but uh, yeah it's it's not sounding I would, good i would i would make yeah. well i would make mashed potatoes and add that as a, like like you're adding bacon i would add them after and mix them together i, th- I think we need to all reconvene I, th- I think that's my vote i think we, that's my vote we need to all make these potatoes with our Set own a way, different way. Yeah. and then we need yeah. to reconvene and 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 get the results i really want you to try out. this thing that i've never tried and then eat your failure which is actually technically my failure, but like I want you to eat it. <laughs> so. so the the whole okay. So here's what's stopping me on your idea: the idea that I'm taking the crispy parts and then I'm making them soggy. 
to me d d defeats the purpose. Like I just something about that. But it's not the, the texture direction. that we're going for here. Like we're going for like that flavor. It's like that idea of like scraping up all the weird mm. bits at the bottom of the stew. Sure. Like, I was going for both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's my idea, Tom, is that they're both. I get the crispiness and the soft mixed together so that it's like here. So I should give you a little bit more preface. Have you all had pierogies before? Yes. No. End this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I was trying to figure out a good mashed potato filling for pierogies so I can make pierogies. That's where this all started. So just put bacon in it. I think Tom was right the first time. <laughs> that was what you were going for. Uh, <laughs> you, you, yeah, you could do that, man. You could put bacon in anything, you know? So, but yeah, that's that's a backup. But anyway, let's move on to the third, the fifth and final skill. What do you got, Chris? All right. This is going to sound a little cliche, but honestly, I genuinely and thoroughly believe this, which is ironic because... Number five is self-belief as my number five biggest skill. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, riddle me that. Huh? Oh, yeah, it's essential to developing many other skills. Well, yeah. I, I'm going to need some more. You got That doesn't sound like a skill. You're going to have to give me more than that. Well, it's, I guess it's debatable whether or not it's an actual skill. But what I can say is like, Let's say, PJ, when you and I first encountered ourselves on social media, right? Or me encountered you mm -hmm. and vice versa. Like, uh -huh. I was not particularly good. Like, <laughs> I was making stuff and I was making things at a passable level. <laughs> but I had nothing that I would, like, really consider being a quality skill that I could convey to other people necessarily. Um, but my whole thing was that like i believe that i could achieve more and every single time i try to do something new try to learn new skills i always believe like yeah i can do it whether or not part of that has something to do with arrogance is just looking like oh yeah like hold my drink and watch this like i can do what that guy's doing well that's a whole different story but for the most part like you need to believe in yourself to be able to accomplish things like hands down I see Tom raising his hand. Hit me, Tom. Yeah. I just, so I just saw Wobie Designs cut a hole in his brand new Sprinter van um, right through the roof for probably an AC unit. I don't remember. But on the panel, which was like maybe a foot square, he wrote in marker, you can make this cut. I think I, I might be wrong with the word, but that's what I remember reading. And it's just like that. Like you're saying, like sometimes you need a physical reminder to tell you that you can do something yeah absolutely <laughs> a physical reminder it's, it's like that intimidating yeah step. or just like some weird little demon and like on your left side that's like whispering in your ear like you can totally do yeah. this even though like you probably physically can't but like you need to know that and you need to like trust in yourself because honestly mm -hmm, even mm -hmm. and this is so overplayed right like failure makes you better like if you are screwing stuff up if you're not sure. doing things correctly like that is one more way of knowing like how not to do something. And another good right. buddy of mine, who's also named PJ, once told me like, ask the uh, guy. The other PJ. Yeah, it's another PJ. But like, ask the guy in the room who has messed stuff up the most, like how to do something, because that guy knows exactly what not to do. <clears throat> like, talk to you know people that have had that experience and just trust in like your skill set like even if it's not that good like break things down to the smallest problem like i always think back to 
and it's such a goofy cliche, but that movie, The Martian, with uh, Matt Damon, Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, <laughs> but like that whole movie is based around this concept of like work the problem. So you have a problem in front of you. What's the like most practical and accomplishable way of doing this? And for me, like looking at a joint, I'm like, okay, first thing I have to do is mark it out. Once I mark it out, all I have to do is cut as close to that line without crossing over that line as possible. Then the next question is, and when I'm paring it down with a chisel, am I taking the line, leaving the line, or am I halving the line? And then it's a lot of hope and pray as I'm bringing them together that I'm not like busting the joint. But at that point, like usually I'm so confident in how I've done it that I'm pretty confident that it's going to come together and then it's just fine-tuning to make sure that it works so that's i mean to an extent i think a skill because i think so many folks doubt themselves and i think so many folks doubt themselves kind of unnecessarily and 98 percent of us that are doing this kind of thing in this field and doing it on social media for the fun of it i mean our stakes are low for the most part you know we're not doing this stuff to eat so mm-hmm. Yeah, like if you need to, like screw it up. It's fine. Like whatever. You're going to learn to be able to do it better the next time. So self-belief. There you go. Well, it's really what you're talking about is confidence. Confidence is it's not it's not really a skill. I'll, I'll give it to you. But confidence is definitely very, very important. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I owe Tanda an apology from last week's episode. I was super confident in what I said that air conditioners only have one fan and, and I was installing my new air conditioner, I realized there's only one motor, but there's two fans. And I had not, because the, the second fan is hidden, unless you're looking for it, I, I, I was like, nah, there's only one fan. And I was totally confident in my answer, and she, did, she didn't say anything. And I'm like, nah, there's only one fan. What are you talking about? You got one with two fans? There's two fans <laughs> in the air conditioners. There's, there's one that cools on the outside, and then there's the one that blows in. But I think the one that blows in has a clutch, so it turns on and off, but there's only one motor. So, but the point I'm making here is confidence will take you a long, long way, uh, much more than skills will. Uh, I am, I can only say that I'm honestly the master of one skill and that's troubleshooting. I'm a master troubleshooter. Every other skill I have, I, I can't really compare to anybody else. Everybody else is probably better than me. You know, I'll try anything that I don't know how to do and do it and not care because my confidence level is like eight times higher than all my skills. You know, I built a Japanese style roof. No idea how to do it. I just did it, you know? And everybody's like, how are you doing that? Like, I don't know, just, just see how it goes. It'll, it's either gonna work or it's not. If it doesn't work, I'll figure it out, <laughs> you know? So- Well, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of power in just stepping back and going, um, if I totally mess this up, you know, I'm, I'm working on a piece of wood that's worth $15, $20. Even if it's worth 50 bucks, it's like, how much would it cost me to learn this, to go, to go take the class or to do all the research and how much time, you know, is my time worth? So worst mm-hmm. case, I have to get another piece of wood and do this again, get another piece of metal or whatever the case may be. And oftentimes it's, it's much less. Oftentimes you're beating yourself up and you're worried about whether you should make this cut or, or take this approach. And it's like, if this just goes totally south, I'm out $3 and 20 minutes. And sometimes yeah, it just yeah. takes getting out of your own way and going and stepping back and saying, 
this is silly. What what if it doesn't work? It's not not a big deal. I'll try it three more times and I'll get yeah. it. Yeah, and Tanda, to that point, yeah. like I see so many people that, and I get a lot of or a fair bit of DMs of people that are asking me like, well, like, how did you get started? Like, how did you get confidence to get started? I'm like, I didn't. I just, like, started, you know? Like, the... I'm trying to think of the adage, but it's like, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. It's like, just do it. Like, just make the first cut. Like, screw something up. Like, make it... Just just do it because ultimately, like, that's the only way you're going to figure out what you're made of and that's the only way you're going to figure out where you need to improve where you your skills need to adapt so you know like that's the biggest thing is like there's so many people that have this like paralysis by inaction where they are just looking at a situation they're so intimidated by the mountain that they have to climb that they're so scared to just even like put that chisel to the piece of wood and whack it with a hammer like it's it's not a you know it's not a religious thing just just hit it like and do it like and what's the worst that's going to happen? Even if it's like hundreds of dollars down the road and the stakes are high, like, you know, ultimately this is, this is life. Like this is what we're doing. Like we're just building stuff. We're making things like we're trying to, even if it's for a client and there's high stakes, like there's always things to fix. Like there's always mistakes to be had and you just have to recover for them and deal with it. And I mean, that goes from like the very beginner level to the very advanced level. And I think that's something that is, transcendent through everything is at least some level of confidence and if not confidence in your skill set confidence in your i guess like belief or perseverance if you want to become an expert or good at anything you just immerse yourself in it you know four years ago nobody would even bother asking me anything about delta tools drill presses table saws none of that stuff now i have people i don't know sending me messages on instagram asking me about problems and things that because now that's the appearance i have i'm now the delta expert i never claimed to be an expert but i've now had my whole shop is full of delta rockwell stuff so i know a lot more than the average person does I'm not saying i'm an expert but i have enough confidence i'll just tear something apart it doesn't matter to me you know i pay next to nothing for all these tools so it's the same thing with the joinery so just like Tanda said, you mess up a piece of wood, you get another piece of wood. You know, it's not that hard. So, yeah, if everybody listen to Chris and just accept the confidence and move on with your lives, that's where we're going to stop. Was that our best guess? I don't know, but it was a guest. All right, it's time for short and sweet to wrap up the show. <clears throat> I think Tom was right. This is definitely going to be one of our longest shows. Chris, do you have anything you want to, to say or shout outs or anything for the end of the show? Um, so, really quick shout out uh, to the Cats Moses Woodworkers with Disabilities Foundation. So, I am also the executive director for Jonathan Cats Moses' charity. We've got a initiative that's launching off in a couple of weeks. It is our, uh, what we are calling the build-up initiative. And essentially the concept is, is that woodworkers that have disabilities have trouble with work holding. We are trying to resolve that and we are looking for community support. So we are going to have a couple hmm. of projects that people that are interested in helping can build for recipients. Uh, that includes a low workbench, a quick release Moxon Vice uh, 
setup as well as a gantry crane with a hopefully we're still working on the engineering which is a little late in the game because it's a two weeks out but uh hopefully this gantry crane will have an electric chain hoist to be able to help folks move and flip objects in the shop so uh, if you want information on that just most people are following jcats moses anyway but keep tuned and uh you know we'll have more details on that all right good stuff good very stuff cool. very cool tom frog pod yeah <clears throat> no no frog pod news um but thank you thank you chris <laughs> um for <laughs> for joining us um everybody go check out chris chris where can everybody find you? i am at cowdog craftworks on everything um my biggest sort of push is youtube for the most part i am very very responsive on instagram so if anybody has questions about japanese tools or anything feel free to shoot me a dm i'm also on twitter at cowdog craft work no s because it wouldn't let me um apparently there's a character limit there <laughs> uh however if you follow me on twitter it is mostly just nonsensical comments about things a lot of mba rants uh so you're not gonna get a lot of maker content over there but i do exist over there if that's your thing um but yes cato craft works mostly everywhere awesome cool man thank you tom tom is that it oh yeah i'm all i'm good tom's good i got nothing it's got nothing i'm moving i'm very bu- i'm very busy okay all right tanda you got anything for short and sweet yeah i think i'm going to give a shout out to the guys uh, at maker's waffle so that's andy Pugh and jamie reader who've been doing a the maker's waffle kind of a podcast and live stream um and they've been at it a little over a year now i think they just hit their one year milestone recently so uh i'm just uh it was going to give a shout out to them their last episode was kind of a a wrap-up or a follow-up of Maker Central, which made me feel like I should have gone. Um, but uh, that's a that's a long trip. But uh, I, I did definitely have uh, some FOMO as I watched. So shout-out to them for carrying on for a year and, and having a lot of interesting guests on Maker's Waffle. All right, all right. Uh, I, I want to – I guess I want to say um, – like I said earlier, Chris and I first interacted. I won a box from him in a contest. And the picture of the box that had been online looked like a normal box that just had, like, it, the lid lifts off and it's nicely made. But it was shot in such a way that it looked like a normal box. And when I got it, there was, like, the lid is, like, two-thirds of a lid. How should I say this? He had a live-edged lid with a frame around it, so there's a hole in the top. And I got it, and I'm like, like what did you... What? Is this supposed to be like this? <laughs> and it's awesome, though. It's on... It's right. I could see it from where I'm sitting. It's sitting at the, the end of my dresser there, and I've got all my goodies in there and uh, all my little uh, things that I want kept safe. Um but uh, I, I did mention also the air conditioner. My air conditioner died. And um, I would like to, uh, to gripe a little bit for Frigidaire um, for having the worst instructions for installing an air conditioner that I've ever read. Um, specifically the part where you're taking off the face and it tells you to rotate the face until it is removed but doesn't give you a direction as to 
how to rotate it. So I stat I was on the ground for 45 minutes looking at useless YouTube videos that don't show you how to take the face off. There's absolutely no reference point online to tell you why the face won't come off. There's two screws and then it just says rotate the face. Now rotate There's only two directions you could have picked. <laughs> yeah, well, guess what? It's neither of those directions. Oh no, you Tom. could rotate it forward and backward, Tom. Yeah. So there's not just counterclockwise and clockwise. Yeah. Yeah. It actually did not mean counterclockwise and clockwise. It didn't mean up and down or left or right. Uh, the top part has two little tabs that go directly inside from the outside. And it doesn't make a difference which way you rotate them. It's not going to pop <laughs> loose. Okay. What I did was I got my cell phone repair kit, which has plastic pry bars and I shoved it under there and I just ran it up the edge. And I'm like, if this is going to break, it's going to break with one of these things. And I got it off of there. Okay. I got it off. And then once that was off and I saw how it went on there, I'm like, ah, yeah, this is for like stupid people. I should have been able to figure this out. But it took me 45 minutes because I just bought a brand new air conditioner and I didn't feel like breaking it before it was installed. Right. Um, aside from that, it's a great model. It's got a heat pump. So hopefully that'll save me some money in the winter time, and it's got a remote control, so I really like it. And um, and I will say, I will say, I got it off Amazon. Uh, I went to the store to see if the store would give me a good deal on an air conditioner. They didn't have one in the size I needed because I have a hole cut in the side of my house. And the guys, I said, I look, I found one on Amazon. I said, but I'd rather buy it from you guys so I could just take it home. And he goes, well, what did you find? Give me the model. So I gave him the model and the price, and he's like, you're getting it for $20 more than my price. He says, you should buy it from Amazon. <laughs> so that's what I, that's what I did. And, and uh, that's it. It's installed and it works. That's my little rant. So um, I'd like to thank Chris for coming on the show. Uh, I want to thank our top Patreon supporters, our very own Tanda and Creatornator. And if you would like to become a Patreon supporter, just go to patreon.com forward slash makerskills. And you could be in the group of cool kids that gets to listen to the secret segment, which we're about to go do with Chris, talk about secret stuff. And he's got way better stuff to talk about than us. So that should tell you something right there. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this episode of Maker Skills. If you should need more skill information, you can find us on Instagram at maker.skills. You can also email us at makerskillspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at PJ Galati, son of the junk hunter on Instagram and YouTube. You can find Tanda at Tanda Madison on Instagram. And you can find Tom at Infinite Craftsman on Instagram. We welcome any comments. Please leave us five-star reviews on Apple so that we can make more skill madness come your way. See you next time.